Hi, Tobias Carlisle here. I've launched a new firm called Acquirers Funds. We implement the Acquirers Multiple in a highly liquid, tax-efficient and capital-efficient way. If you'd like to learn more, go to acquirersfunds.com. When you're ready. Sure. Hi, I'm Tobias Carlisle. This is the Acquirers Podcast. I'm joined today by Sama Drangi of Kerisdale Capital. Kerisdale are well known for their short selling. They're a special situation, event-driven special situation, characterized by deep research and some great research reports, which they very generously share with the market. Tobias Carlisle is the founder and principal of Acquire's Funds. For regulatory reasons, he will not discuss any of the Acquire's Funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Acquire's Funds or affiliates. For more information, visit acquiresfunds.com. Sam, thanks for joining me today. Thank you. It's good to be here. Uh, My absolute pleasure. So I think that the way that most folks probably... Uh, well, you, you came to prominence with the Chinese reverse mergers. That was in, uh, what, what year was that? So it was 2010. So 2010 we, had, all began. we had been emailing back and forth uh, in about 2009 about some net nets that uh, I used to run on the old blog, greenback.com. So what, how, how did you find the Chinese reverse merger frauds? What was the, um, what was the catalyst there? Sure. So... I launched my fund with three hundred thousand dollars, middle of uh, two thousand nine, July two thousand nine, and you know I'd never been a portfolio manager before. I was twenty eight, so really the idea was to start putting together a portfolio. And so um, back then, you know, like a lot of people, I was just getting ideas from the internet, and so that's how I came across. Um, I think it was Coventry that uh, you'd written about on your blog, and I took a closer look at. Um, and you know, I think that's when I reached out, and it was. One of the first longs I wrote about in 2009, 2010, and it was this net-net. And I, st- I can't even remember exactly how it turned out. You know, it was just Not one of these liquidations. Yeah. I think we made money off of it. I remember, like, the CEO got sued, and, like, you didn't know whether proceeds were going to come from that or whatever. But, um, but, yeah, I was getting a lot of my ideas off the Internet. And um, around then, some zero had launched. And, you know, many of your followers may be familiar with SumZero. For those who aren't, SumZero is a uh, platform where mostly professional analysts trade ideas with one another. And I would just sort of scour SumZero looking for ideas. I was member number 100. Um, you know, I knew Divya and Olip uh, personally at the time when they launched it. And, you know, I would just sort of make connections with, with other folks sharing ideas on there. And, um, you know, I remember at one point, one of these, one of the guys I was speaking with said, hey, you should take a look at this idea. It was a SPAC buying a Chinese company. And um, as I looked deeper into it, it seemed like a great financial engineering opportunity on the long side. Um, so I made sort of a big investment five months into my fund. It was sort of a binary trade. I put 10% of my capital into this binary trade where it was either going to go to zero or it was going to at least double. And I sort of like took the rest of the month off. I'm like, you know what, either my hedge fund's over after five months or I'm up like 20 or 30%. Uh, I started working on my website. I hadn't built a website then. It's probably good working on the website since it's become such a big part of our business at this point. Um, the trade worked out. We had a good November in 2009. Um, I had my first six months out of my belt and I had a finished website. 
Um, but you know, after that, this, after the SPAC acquired this Chinese company, I looked, you know, more deeply into whether, um, you know, what was going on with these businesses. And after six months of analysis, I realized they were committing fraud, and you know, then it was off to the races. So the uh, the first one uh, that you wrote about was China Marine. Do you do you remember China Marine? Yeah, China Marine Food was the first one. Um, and the reason it was the first one, I mean, there were a lot of these companies, right? And, and uh, you know, one of sort of my bigger breakthroughs in sort of discovering that they were committing fraud was, um, you know, back then there wasn't much, there wasn't Seeking Alpha really. I mean, Seeking Alpha was, was existed, but nobody really wrote anything substantial on there. Um, what was actually a great um, area to just sort of talk about stocks was Yahoo Finance. And so I was sort of just always reading the Yahoo Finance, as I was just doing my diligence on, the, in, on these Chinese reverse mergers, I was reading the Yahoo Finance uh, message boards, and there was this one guy who was writing under a screen name, turned out to be um, a 70-year-old you know, businessman in, in Austin, Texas, that just liked to trade stocks on his own. Um, and he he started doing this work where he was pulling these Chinese filings from China, and the filings from China were showing like a million dollars of revenue, whereas the U.S. filings were showing a hundred million dollars of revenue. And I, uh, you know, I started doing the same thing for a bunch of companies, for like 10, 20 companies that you know I'd been looking at. And China Marine was uh, Marine was one of them where it was reporting a couple million dollars versus like a hundred, two hundred million dollars, you know, that it was reporting in the U.S. Um, the reason I did China Marine first was because as part of my diligence, I wasn't simply just reading docs. I was going to the conferences and I was just trying to talk to people. I was trying to talk to the bankers that did these deals. I was trying to talk to the, um, you know, the sell side analysts. And one of the folks, one of the groups of industry um, folks that I was, I was trying to speak with was the pipe funds that seemed to be the original seed investors um, in a lot of them. And... You know, I was sort of like looking for these guys. There was a very small handful of pipe funds. You know, you sort of wouldn't, most people wouldn't recognize them. Um, but I ended up getting a lunch with, with one of them. And I was 28, 29 at the time. I managed $300,000, $400,000 now. Maybe $360,000 at this point after my, you know, returns in 2009. Um, and I had lunch and, you know, I just started talking to him. I talked to him about these filings I was pulling. He was curious about them. And he was behind, you know, he'd seated a bunch of these companies. And I think as sort of the lunch continued, um, and he got more comfortable, and, you know, we started, we we're on a third, fourth glass of wine. He started like telling me some of the stories that he'd seen in China. And um, he had a team in China, you know, sort of, you know, he probably was invested in 20 or 30 of these businesses, but he'd seen hundreds of them, right? His team had seen hundreds of them. So he started telling me stories about about the fraud. He'd be like, yeah, we'd visit this one company and it was an entire boarded up building with like padlock doors. We'd visit this other um, company and you know, there'd be like nothing in the factory and always, you know, the companies where there were blatant fraud were the ones he wasn't invested in. It was all the other ones that were, that were, that were like- The ones that fraud, weren't but, blatant frauds. Yeah. But like, frauds, just not blatant ones. Yeah, like, but anyway, so he started talking about China Marine Food. And, you know, he, he started telling me a few stories about China Marine Food. And, and I remember their, their um, Chinese filings hadn't matched their U.S. filings. And I had this sort of like pipe investor that was invested in a lot of these saying, hey, this one's not real. And so um, that ended up being the first one I decided to go forward with. And as I did my diligence, you know, a bunch of 
pretty funny stuff came up. You know, I remember originally I wrote an article that said, hey, the U.S. filings and Chinese filings don't match. And a whole bunch of, you know, things about their margins and their um, uh, working capital didn't make any sense. But then as I continued to research, I realized that their accounting firm was this Hong Kong accounting firm that only had two partners. Right. They're generating 50, 100 million dollars of revenue each year. And it's a two partner firm. And then I started doing more work and I realized that one of them was in the midst of a lawsuit getting sued by a Danish investor for defrauding that Danish investor by putting that Danish investor into one fraudulent like Chinese private entity. Then when that guy lost money on that entity, he's like, all right, well, you know, sorry, that one didn't work out. But why don't we take the money that you had, put some more money in into the second thing and then to a third thing. By the time the guy had gotten duped four times, he filed a lawsuit against the accountant. And this was the accountant of China Marine Food. And so I'm like, you know, we just, I decided to move forward with that one. And, you know, it ended up being a successful trade and then that stock declined dramatically. And it was part of an SEC enforcement action, I think, a couple of years later um, that really brought against the, by the SEC against that company's um, U.S. accountant. I think it may have switched from the Hong Kong auditor to the U.S. accountant, but I think it, it was it was subject to an SEC enforcement action at some point a couple of years later. And so the next uh, high-profile uh, Chinese reverse merger was uh, China Education. Do you want to tell the story there? Yeah, China Education Alliance is sort of one of the sillier frauds that we've exposed. And it was early on. It was November 2010. It was just when you know, the whole fraud exposing thing was gaining steam. Um, and, you know, China Education Alliance, half of its business was in an online education um, website or where high school students would go and get test prep in order for their end of year exams. Um, and I had someone who speaks Chinese visit the website and, um, you know, just look through it. And he came back and said, like, everything's broken on this website. None of the links work. You can't even pay for anything on the site. And so this company is reporting 50% growth each year, yet you can't actually purchase anything on their website because they haven't bothered to like update the website over the past year. Um, and so we created a video where you know this person just simply started clicking on links and showed all the dead links. Like American investors couldn't necessarily see that, but you know any. Uh, but this person spoke Chinese and English, and so he was able to demonstrate you know how these how the site was broken. Um, and so that was half the business. And then the other half of the business was a training center. Think of like Princeton Review with its uh, classroom centers. And um, we had someone go visit the, the building and completely vacant building. We had the right address, right everything. But, you know, the actual um, educator that was occupying the building, and it wasn't China Education Alliance, um, had vacated the building six months before. And and so there was just no chairs, no desks. Um, so we, we put together a video of that. I think both of those are on the internet somewhere, um, and uh, exposed the company and and you know it was a very profitable trade for us. And and you know. yeah, that's funny. We I, I had a I knew a, a local firm in Los Angeles that uh, that invested in Sino Forest, Sino Forest. Oh, yeah. I don't know if you remember that one, but that was my my dad was invested in Sino Forest, and I knew Carson at the time. And after he exposed him, I'm like, "Dude, you just like lost my dad 50k. Not cool." <laughs> <laughs> well, this firm is a pretty big firm. They put a hundred million dollars into this, and they they did extensive due diligence, including sending an analyst to China who took them to a forest and showed them the forest, but the, the forest. they didn't they didn't own it. 
<laughs> so that's that's a trap that you have to be careful of. Um, yeah. So the uh, more recently, the possibly the thing that you uh, have been best known for is the in telecommunications was Global Star. Do you right. want to tell the, the Global Star story? Sure. Yeah, Global Star was probably my favorite campaign outside of outside of the Chinese frauds. Um, you know, in this business, sometimes you find shorts that you're very excited about and you feel like you've definitively proven that it's worth zero. And then in other situations, you know, like much of investing, um, you, based on your diligence, you think that you're probably right. Um, and if you've done your work, you usually are, but you don't have that same level of conviction as other situations. Global Star was an exciting one for us because the company was trading at $5 billion, uh, enterprise value of $4.5 billion market cap. Um, and we felt that we'd proven definitively that the stock was worthless, um, which was just very exciting. And, and our thesis really wasn't out there in any way, shape, or form. Um, it wasn't on any websites. Um, nobody had really done the level of work that we'd done and come to our conclusions. And um, so we got so excited by it, we made it, we made it a large position. And um, you know, this was a year and a half after Bill Ackman's Herbalife campaign. And I'd sort of watched that just as part of studying what other short activists were doing. And so we decided to rent the same auditorium, the same live streaming firm, and we even created the same uh, a website. His website was Facts About Herbalife. We created a website called Facts About Global Star, which is still live. And um, I gave a three or four hour presentation on why this company's spectrum was, worth, was worthless. And that's really what you know, the the company's four and a half billion dollar valuation was based on it's sort of the spectrum value. And, um, you know, it was a really exciting one for us is sort of to this day, the only other live, uh, the only live presentation we've given, I think us and Ackman are really the only two firms that have rented out our own auditoriums for our own presentations. I mean, there's folks that go on to, um, you know, these conferences, Robin Hood, Arizona and present amongst many other speakers, but it certainly takes, um, yeah, you know, it's another level to just rent your own auditorium, create your own event, and um, you know it was, it, was, it was an exciting one. And um, well, it worked. But do you do you remember the thesis? Yeah. So in the case of Global Star, it basically had spectrum. So uh, it's a satellite company, and many of these satellite businesses oftentimes end up being worth more for the spectrum than the actual satellite business. You know, satellite connectivity, you know, continues to lose ground to terrestrial uh, competition, and Global Star made. Uh, phones that could be used in uh, places where you can get cell phone connectivity, but nowadays, you know, outside of uh, you know, if you're hiking in really remote areas, you know, you're you're going to get Verizon or AT and T or T-Mobile signals, you know, just about everywhere. You don't need a special phone. And so, whereas you know, these satellite companies have to spend billions of dollars to launch these satellites into space to serve you know ever shrinking markets. And um, on top of that, Global Star was sort of the uh, um, the worst provider relative to its peers. And so the satellite business was just not worth very much, certainly not worth four or five billion dollars. But um, the spectrum that it was using for part of its uh, part of its uh, you know wireless operations um, is in the sort of the two point starting to forget two point four nine five gigahertz band, I think. Um, and you know that's sort of roughly around where, Sprint's 2.5 gigahertz spectrum is, and in some of the um, other, you know, LTE bands, other bands that the wireless players use for LTE, and so there was just just sort of very basic thinking out there that you know this spectrum was potentially very valuable, worth billions of dollars. Um, but uh, 
It wasn't because it's not simply about you know the location of your frequencies. It depends on who your neighbors are, who you're sharing the spectrum with, um, uh, you know, the width of it, how it sort of plays into, you know, um, current wire the current wireless generation, upcoming wireless generations, um, and for a variety of reasons, uh, global source spectrum, which is getting valued at four billion dollars, was actually worth nothing. The main reason is the same reason that. Uh, Light Squared has gone bankrupt multiple times. Um, uh, at the end of the day, it has the wrong neighbors. You know, Light Squared Spectrum had GPS as its immediate neighbor, and so there was interference between its bands, had it been, you know, enabled for uh, cellular communication, and the GPS frequencies immediately adjacent to it. In the case of Global Star, it was immediately adjacent to Wi-Fi. Um, and so if it was ever converted to high-power cellular usage, it would cause interference with the immediately neighboring Wi-Fi, and so this spectrum was just never going to amount to anything uh, because it had the wrong neighbors. And so, uh, can you contrast that with your experience with Straight Path? Sure. So, uh, Global Star is a spectrum story we got dead right. Uh, Straight Path is a spectrum story we got dead wrong. Um, in the case of Straight Path, Straight Path has very high frequency spectrum, and so certainly, I mean. If you went back five, ten years ago, um, the idea that these frequencies would, you know, ever become valuable, I think, you know, a lot of experts in the field would sort of cast doubt on that because, you know, um, as you go higher up in frequency, uh, the signal strength gets exponentially weaker, and you know, most of the frequencies that are used for um, LTE or, or sort of current uh, wireless communications are 2.5 gigahertz or lower, right? As you start getting to three gigahertz, four gigahertz, five gigahertz, um, you know, the signals become exponentially weaker and um, straight bass spectrum was in 29 gigahertz band, the 36 gigahertz band, right? So dramatically higher than what's currently being used. And so, and then the other issue with frequencies in that high of the spectrum range, nobody else is using them. So there's hundreds of megahertz, there's gigahertz totally available. It's not like, Spectrums, uh, sorry, straight paths bands are the only frequencies available, and so we just felt it wasn't worth more than a couple hundred million dollars. Um, the issue is that uh, you know wireless technology uh, has been advancing uh, pretty dramatically over the past five years, given just the exploding usage of cell phones, and there's just been a lot of funding that's gone into um, that line of work, and so um, you know uh, engineers have been able to find ways to make use of these very high frequency bands. Um, and although there's a lot out there, Verizon, AT&T, and Sprint were willing to spend a couple billion dollars to get their hands of on something that they could start deploying 5G on. Um, and so 5G uh, technology will be using these very high frequencies um, and uh, straight path and uh, ended up becoming an asset that folks wanted. And so we thought that the frequencies were worth a couple hundred million dollars. Um, in the end, I think it was about $3 billion of Verizon ultimately paid for it. And um, I think, you know, on, on sort of one account, no short activist has ever been more wrong on a name than we've been wrong on Straight Path. We said, and the stock was trading, I think, around 40. You know, we said in January 2017 that it was worth... Um, that it was worth like 20 bucks. I think within three months later, it was bought out at 180 bucks. So, uh, yeah. 
Um, you've clearly got some expertise in telecommunications and uh, that's reflected. You've also got a long, or you had an activist long in Intelsat. Do you want to talk about Intelsat? Yeah, so then in the case of Intelsat, you know, it's another satellite company where the satellite business is under pressure, not worth a whole lot in terms of as a revenue, has a multiple of revenue or EBITDA. Um, but they've ended up sitting on an extremely valuable swath of spectrum. Um, they use frequencies between uh, 3.7 and 4.2 gigahertz for uh, linear uh, TV broadcast distribution. So, um, you know, uh, if you've got Disney, a Disney studio in Los Angeles, that's sort of making uh, that sort of um, uh, broadcasting certain certain uh, shows, etc. Uh, those signals, in order to get to maybe the other side of the country, will go up to satellites and then you know go back down to cable head ends in Washington D.C. Um, and those fre- the frequencies used for those TV broadcast signals um, are between 3.7 and 4.2 gigahertz. Um, the mid three gigahertz band has become a prime uh, area of unused spectrum that 5G technology can take advantage of. And so, um, you know, Intelsat and SES, the other main user of this sort of 3.7 to 4.2 gigahertz band. And this is this is a small part of both both businesses. Um, they approached the FCC in 2018 and or 2017. Um, yeah, late 2017, and pitched the idea of um, sort of reconfiguring their usage within 3.7 to 4.2 to be able to take some of that spectrum and sell it to Verizon, AT&T, or Sprint, or T-Mobile. Um, and I think the ultimate proceeds that they could get from that are going to be in the tens of billions of dollars. Um, and, and those proceeds sort of dwarf the market cap enterprise values of these companies. And so, you know, it makes the stocks multi-baggers. And when we published on it last year, you know, the story really wasn't out there. Um, there were just a few glimmers that, you know, the spectrum might be valuable and the FCC proceeding might might play out to their favor. But there's been so much disappointment in the history of satellite companies trying to make money off of their spectrum uh, holdings uh, that, you know, I think there was a lot of skepticism. But and this is a situation where the stars did align and we believe have continued to align. And much of what we predicted, you know, in the middle of last year about how the FCC process was going to proceed and the potential value of the spectrum, you know, as, as has played out. And, uh, you know, it's still one of our largest investments that, you know, we're particularly excited about, about Intelsat and, and, and its ability to sell this 3.7 to 4.2 gigahertz spectrum to the wireless carriers. So you guys also so you have, also uh, have uh, a focus in, focus in biotech and mining. Do you want to talk a little bit about uh, Prothena? Sure. So Prothena is a situation. We, we end up publishing on biotechs a couple times a year, typically. And, and a lot of the names that we published on are, are companies that are getting valued a billion, two billion, three billion dollars um, because of a single drug that's undergoing phase three trials. And given that biotech's been a hot space over the past five to ten years, you have situations where um, you know investor expectation around phase three trial is sort of resulting in um, or success in a phase two trial is resulting in you know multi billion dollar valuations. But if you actually sort of dig into the mechanism of action and you look at the phase two data, you come to the conclusion that it's very unlikely to, to succeed in that phase three. And to the extent they fail phase three, you know these stocks are down seventy or eighty percent. 
Um, and we get excited about that on the short side because in terms of short actives, and we can go out and we can say a stock is worth dramatically less than where it's currently trading at versus worth 20, 30% less. Um, and so, you know, we've, we, we've always uh, poked around in the biotech space. We've built out some expertise there. And Prothena was a situation where, you know, the company was getting valued at $2 billion, $2.5 billion um, because of one drug. Um, and, you know, we felt within six to 12 months, the trials were going to read out for that drug. They weren't going to um, be successful in terms of allowing the, the trials to meet their endpoints. And I think when the when the when the, that phase three failed, the stock had a lot of downside, and turned out to be the case. I think they ended up failing that trial um, in sort of seven or eight months later, um, and, the, and the stock's down 70, 80 percent. And on the mining front, uh, how about First Majestic? Sure, First Majestic was a situation where silver prices had gone up a lot, um, but the stock price of First Majestic, one of the larger silver uh, mining companies, had gone up a lot more. Um, and the best way to just sort of assess that is to see um, it's, uh, it's, it's the, the company's valuation based on its sort of stock price relative to its NAV and, and how much of a premium, you know, had started to get, get built in there. So a lot of times these silver miners were sort of trading. I mean, a lot of the comps were trading maybe one to two times NAV. Um, First Majestic had gone up to four to five times. And so, you know, unless there was something special about their silver relative to the other silver miners, you know, this this valuation premium wasn't justified. Or if there was something, you know, special about the management or, you know, potentially future acquisitions, et cetera. But, you know, to a large part, it was sort of business as usual for First Majestic, the company. The market had just gotten carried away because several prices had, had, had increased um, significantly over the prior six months. And so what we did there is we went short First Majestic, we went long a basket of other silver miners, um, we wrote a report that's saying that this sort of NAV premium just makes no sense. Um, and uh, so that's First Majestic. You've got uh, a very broad range of uh, industries that you look at from telecommunications, mining, biotech, started with the Chinese reverse mergers, and you long and short. Uh, what's your process for finding positions and uh, when you're looking at them, are you thinking long or short, or are you how are you how do you how do you handle that? Yeah, so I mean, we've got a team, um, and I think one thing that I've just noticed about investment professionals is that you know there are differences uh, among different folks. Some people look at a ton of ideas and winnow them down to a much smaller number of names. Some analysts like to build expertise in certain sectors and mostly focus on those those sectors and leverage. Um, you know what they've learned over many years um and you know different members of our team sort of do things differently just in terms of myself um i like to jump around you know it's sort of like the add in me sometimes i'm i'm sourcing ideas from uh the idea sharing websites uh sometimes i'm using screens sometimes i'm revisiting a company that i looked at five years ago um but over time as you look at more and more investments it's not about how you source ideas but understanding what you need to, what diligence you need to have done to get enough conviction to build a position. And then especially, you know, when to move from making something a one or 2% position to a potentially a 10, 15, 20% position, you know, and those are the situations where you can make real money. And I think the skill in investing in the public markets 
has a lot more to do with not where you source your ideas or how you source your ideas, but how you navigate that sort of continuum of uh, when you've done enough research to make something a position and when you've done enough research to take a small position and make it a large position. Um, but what I found is like where we actually get the idea, you know, can really vary. Yeah, so in terms of managing the portfolio, the, moving from uh, smaller positions, starter positions in the 1% to 2% range to conviction, is that what you regard as sort of 10 or 15% is, is, is as concentrated as you'll go from the outset? No, we'll get more concentrated. How big are you at inception? Um, well, I'll make something 50% if I have the conviction on it. Um, you know, one of the things that we do is we don't just sort of make an investment and sit on our hands. I think if you've developed enough conviction to make something that large, um, then it shouldn't take that long for other market participants to see what you're seeing. You know, some of these very attractive investment opportunities can be fleeting. Um, there's multiple times in sort of over the past 10 years of running a fund, I've sort of seen opportunities that seem just really exciting, the stars have aligned with respect to, you know, that stock and why its valuation should be higher and you just like really can't come up with an argument against it relative to what the market is or how its peers are trading, et cetera. Um, and they don't, oftentimes they don't stay at that depressed valuation for too long. Um, and so in those situations, you know, where we've made something a big position, we go out there and we try to sort of tell everyone about what we know, right? We'll call the sell side, we'll call other holders. We'll, unfortunately with us, we've built a brand. Um, we've got 31,000 followers on Twitter, um, you know, thousands of followers on our email lists. And we'll write up the idea and we'll use those platforms as a way to sort of get the thesis out there. Um, so. We can start hearing what other people have to say about it. We can sort of get our views out there. Um, sometimes we'll get feedback that comes back and you know points holes in our original thesis, and we'll be like, "Oops, this shouldn't have been a fifty percent position." Or not that we're building fifty percent positions left, right, and center, but <laughs> this shouldn't be this shouldn't be a ten percent position, fifteen percent position. You know, even if you make something a twelve percent position, if you get it wrong, you know, um, most funds can't withstand you know six hundred basis points losses on on, on a given name. Um, but, uh, we look forward to opportunities where, you know, internally within the firm, um, both the investment team and myself are really excited about an investment so we can make it large, write it up and share our ideas out there and, and go and, and try to get others to view the stock the same way we do and potentially generate some outsized PL for our investors. Or, you know, if we find out that we're wrong. Um, you know, we'll, we'll sort of exit the position, reduce the position. But um, I like searching for those opportunities and, and, and investing that way rather than building a diversified portfolio of a bunch of two or three percent positions because the reality is it's, 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 it's sort of a worse way of doing right by your investors or generating returns for your fund. Like it's just it's worse investing when you build when you get too diversified, in my opinion. And how does your exposure run? Do you do you, do you aim for any level of exposure, long or short, uh, net gross? Um, well, we um, historically, you know, the fund was really designed just to generate returns. You know, it was a lot of my personal capital. I didn't know as much about so the hedge fund uh, 
allocator community and what hedge fund investors were looking for. You know, I'd never really been in the seat of some family office that maybe has $500 million because of a founder that sold his business for a billion, you know. And, you know, when they sort of took that capital, they sort of put $150 million and $200 million into equities and 70% of that would go into various ETFs, you know, low cost, just beta exposure. And then when they looked to their hedge funds, you know, they really wanted just something as an alternative to that. Um, and so oftentimes when those investors look, look at funds, they're looking just for um, a product that can generate returns for them, but withstand volatility, um, uh, you know, during market drawdowns, mostly because of what they have in the rest of their portfolio, right? Um, when I first started, I'm just like, you know, I'm just going to create a vehicle that's going to make as much money as possible in the public markets, right? Um, but, uh, you know, so we used to run a higher net back then, and, but over the past couple of years, we've changed that dramatically um, for a variety of reasons. So today I run a much lower net, you know, 20 to 30 percent, 20 to 40 percent, um, whereas in the old days it used to be 70 to 90 percent. and. That was fun, but uh, you know, I think today and going forward, what we try to do is we we run twenty to forty percent net, and we try to generate you know, meaningful returns for our investors, double-digit returns for our investors year in year out, um, but without uh, you know suffering significant fund drawdowns when you get an overall choppy market. That's what we try to achieve. So when you're when you're the fifty percent positions, that's that's on the long side. You're not putting a short on at 50%, or are you putting a short on at 50%? Um, yeah, it's much more on the long side. You know, on the short side, you have tail risk. Stocks uh, can go up uh, an infinite amount, and so certainly have to be more careful there. Do you, do you, how 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 large do you get on the short side? It varies. Depends on the ideas. I mean, um, we have built you know 20, 30 percent positions, but. You know, sometimes those stocks are very big, so um, you're not necessarily, you know, if a stock trades $500 million a day, you know, uh, it, building a $50 million position isn't quite as risky as if it trades $10 million a day. Um, so, so it varies, you know, it's case dependent. Um, you know, I think this, this whole logic about concentration makes a lot more sense on, on the long side than on the short side. We're short activists and so, you know, we've got a following of folks that will pay attention to our ideas when we publish on the short side and, you know, that can be powerful. Um, whereas on the long, you know, and um, that can help us justify, you know, building larger short positions. But I Because you act as your own catalyst? Um, I wouldn't necessarily put it that way, but I think, you know, you're your average investor, when they share their research, their followers, you know, they haven't built as much credibility over many years. Um, and so Morgan Stanley sell side analyst is less likely to pay attention to their research. Whereas for us, you know, we've just built credibility, we've built a following, built a reputation for doing very high quality research. So certainly in certain sectors, when we publish on them, the, the sell side pays attention and that can be powerful. I think uh, the spectrum space is a good example of that, right? Um, you know, some of the analysts that cover satellite players and spectrum stories, um, they remember when we published on Global Star, they remember when we published on Dish, right? You know, Dish was a very large company and we had a very contrarian view at the time 
that spectrum was being valued much too highly. Um, you know, folks, most analysts covering Dish were either bullish on Dish or um, they felt there was a lot of potential upside such that they would never really have sort of a negative view on Dish given, you know, how much Verizon could come in and potentially buy them out for. But, you know, when we studied the situation, we felt that the vast majority of paths, all, nearly all paths, led to a lower stock price for a variety of spe reasons specific to DISH. And so, you know, we published that report and I went on CNBC and I, I highlighted our thesis on the short side and, um, you know, there was a lot of volume in the stock and a lot of the holders reached out to the sell side and talked about our thesis and, you know, a lot of what we predicted turned out to be right. Um, and I think that stock is down materially from when we originally published on it. It sort of retraced it this year, and I have no idea why. I have no idea why Dish trades where it trades. I think it makes no sense whatsoever. It's totally, totally nutty. Um, but, uh, but a lot of what we sort of predicted in terms of how that situation would play out has turned out to be true. So that now when we publish on a Spectrum story, sell side pays attention, you know. The, the, the longs that sort of traffic in this, you know, very niche space will pay attention. And I think it can be powerful. It's, it's something that we continue to try to cultivate. We try to cultivate a brand um, because it can be helpful in, in, in the hedge fund arena. So as we're, we're coming to the end, uh, when you're thinking prospectively about fertile areas for continued research now, do you look at something like software as a service? Is that a good sector to be digging into? On the short side? On the short side. Um, you know, I mean, I think valuations are stretched in, in in the SaaS space. It's just we don't we don't strive to publish on names where the companies are going to become much larger five, ten, fifteen, twenty years from now. And the reason is because it ends up being a bit of a call on the market's view on valuation, right? I mean, look, we live in a zero or one percent interest rate environment, right? And every company is worth the present value of its future discounted cash flows. If you plug a 1% interest rate into your DCF, it applies an S&P multiple of like 100 times per year, 70, 50, 50, north of 50 times per year, well north of wherever it's trading, where the S&P is trading right now. And so if, it's, if a company is going to become lo much larger 10, 10 years or 20 years from now, um, you know, maybe we're just sort of in this world where if 1%, 2% interest rates persist, that you're not really right mathematically on your short thesis versus a you know biotech where it's going to fail its phase three and you know there are no potential revenues or a situation like global star where the spectrum just has no value you know under any circumstances so companies where you know that aren't going to be larger 10 or 20 years from now um you know we're, we're fundamentally very right about our short thesis whereas you know a SaaS business that trading at 25 times revenue that we should think should be trading at 15 or 10 times revenue could just be a tougher call you know um, that's you know i think i think people valuation shorts get a bad rep and you know a lot of short sellers they say are they trying not to do valuation shorts i think the one thing people don't talk about is that there's a real mathematical argument for why valuation shorts aren't good shorts and and, and the math behind it is that um the dcf for fast-growing companies will spit out very high values if interest rates are low 
and interest rates have been low for a long time. They are low. I think they might continue to be low for a very long period of time. <laughs> so. Well, uh, thank you very much for talking to us. If folks want to follow along with what you're doing, you, what's your Twitter handle? Yeah, so our Twitter handle is Carisdale Cap, K-E-R-R-I-S-D-A-L-E-C-A-P. Our website is www.carisdalecap.com. Um, there's a submit button at the top of the website, and visitors can sign up for our um, research from that site. And yeah, we you know we we love for some of your followers if they're interested by this podcast and want to learn more about our research to follow us on Twitter and sign up for our email list. Well, thanks very much, uh, Sama Drangi of Carisdale Capital. Thanks, Toby.